Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Idle Chatter. I'm your host, Ray Bohax, the Hot Rod Farmer, coming to you from Cat Swamp Road. Three degrees this morning in Cat Swamp Road, so not too, too bad, right? Could have been colder than that, and uh, but there's no wind. I was supposed to get some wind and some snow and ice tomorrow, or tonight into tomorrow. So we'll see what happens. We had... Uh, the other the, the other day since I spoke to you last well, spoke with you got with you last last time is that we had a little bit we had some ice we had it it drizzled it drizzled for a couple of hours and then it got cold and it kept drizzling so I had this thin sheet of glare ice on our driveway that I could not get up and uh, it was uh, some task to get that up. I could not scrape it with the tractor with the bucket or the blade because it was too thin. It was too, not too thin, it was too smooth. You couldn't grab anything with it. And uh, I was going to, we, we have a concrete driveway and I've never put any calcium chloride or anything down on it or, or whatever they say for the ice melt for uh, concrete. I've always been able to get it up and get out. So I want to try to keep it that way. So I got out my Red Dragon Flame Weeder. And you would tend to think that with a half a million BTU, right, 500,000 BTU, that it would make easy work of getting rid of that ice. That ice was laughing at that Red Dragon. It was, so really, it's, a, it's amazing when you look at nature, what God created. And God created fire also, right? So it's not Red Dragon then created but you would tend to think that would, all that it would just like you evaporate before you, but it did not. So I was able to get it up enough and out because I'm always concerned with, you know, God forbid somebody has to go to the hospital. We have no neighbors here, and uh, if you can't get up to the road or an ambulance can't get, well, they could get down, but if they can't get up, what good is that? We have to go up a slight hill to um, get to the road from where our house is here on the farm. But that is that, and then I also, uh, <clears throat> before I get get too deep into the show today, I want to give a shout out to to Michael Cheshire, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correct, sir, he's a new listener from Colorado Springs, Colorado, originally a New Jersey boy and a Navy guy, and he moved out about 20 years ago to Colorado Springs, and he does some automobile inspections, I think, for uh for wholesalers, but he's a new listener to the podcast, so I want to welcome aboard Mr. Cheshire, and uh, and I just got a new, I got another pin in my map for Colorado Springs, so I got two in there for Colorado Springs, and as I told, um, as I as I told him when I communicated with him that I had dreamt about going to school at the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, but they would not take me. They said I am a a bad investment for the taxpayers because I'm legally blind in one eye and I'm hypoglycemic. So uh, they said, you can't even, we wouldn't even let you near a plane to clean the windshield. So that broke my heart because I so wanted to be in the Air Force or in the Navy. So I wanted something, or I would have been, I would have been happy if they would have taken me in the Army. No disrespect to anyone, is in the, anyone that is in the Army, but in the Army, I either would have wanted to be a chopper pilot which they would never let me do, or be on a tank. I, I like to interface with mechanical things. So that is that, and I need to give another shout out and another thank you for a pin in my map. So I got two pins in my map, and that's to Mr. Eugene Thurm, and he's from Redland, Iowa, 
And he told me in his email that Redlin, if I'm pronouncing it right, Reedland or Redlin, I think it's Redlin, R-E-A-D-L-Y-N, that he said that the town is famous for a sign that it has, and I didn't, uh, I should have written it, excuse me, I should have written it down. I think it's it's, it's a small town. I think the pop, said population is 837 people in one grouch or something to that nature. And uh, you know, when he told me that, I, that really struck a memory with me because I think that I was there. I mean, granted, it was 30 years ago. It was 1991, and I had a brand-new Lincoln Mark 7 LSC, and I went out to Iowa. I think it was, in, it was 4th of July weekend. The way 4th of July fell that day, I was going to have my shop closed. I think maybe it was on a Thursday. So it was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I drove out and I I looked at the map. I said, where am I going to go? So I went to, uh, so I put my finger. So I can't go too far, right? Well, it's a thousand miles. Can't go much further than that and then see something. So I went out to Iowa. I stayed in Iowa, outside, outside of Iowa City by Coralville. And then I went swimming in Coralville Dam, and there was a place in Solon, Iowa, called Jonesy's. It had a wonderful, uh, wonderful pork tenderloin sandwich. I don't believe that they're there anymore. Subsequently, I was there a number of times, and then I went bumming around. And I have to look for my old pictures because I believe that I was in your town, Mister Thurm, and because I have a picture in my uh, photo album from that trip, of where it says. Uh, whatever the residence, amount of residence was, it was three digits and one old grump, and I took a picture of that sign. So I believe that uh, I was through your neck of the woods, granted 30 years ago, but that was a, uh, that struck a, that uh, that rang a bell in my memory. So I'm going to thank you both for a pin in my map, and if you want a pin in my map, which will also get you into the drawing for a free USA-made embossed aluminum hot rod farmer license plate for whatever, for your car, your truck, for your toolbox, for your mailbox, whatever, and uh, just send me a email at hotrodfarmer at farmmachinerydigest.com and let me know where you listen from. And then I will put you in the drawing for a, um, a license plate. And once I get them, I will be giving away two a week. So 104 of them a year. There'll be two winners every week. I'll pick your name out of a box, and then I will contact you, and we will go from there, and I will mail it out to you. All right, so that is uh, what that is all about. But also this past week, <clears throat> I got together with uh, my friend Tony the day after I melted the ice. And so we get down the driveway or up the driveway, getting down, getting down was no problem. Uh, gravity took you down there. It was like, whoa, I'm going for this tree. But uh, but anyway, uh, we worked on our we worked on my boiler. We took it all apart. We did our uh, our Tony tune up on it, and I felt really badly because I neglected it for. A while. I I don't like to neglect things, but as I said, I believe in last week's show. I neglected for five years, so uh, I was very curious to see what what it looked like inside, right? Because it was a good test. Because usually we take it apart every two to three years, and we completely disassemble it. We uh, take the brushes and clean out. I'm I, I'm calling rotting out, but it's not rotting with a brush between the. I call it the tubes, and maybe the wrong name because it's a a boiler, so it's hot water, and we take everything apart, take the pump apart, and what have you. So. Uh, 
and they go through it and t- then set everything up and uh, vacuum out the chimney and just do the job right. So what happened was that I said, I said to Tony, hey, you know, it's five years. I'm one month shy of five years. So I said, that's not too good. So let's see what it's like in there. But I've always additized my fuel. And if you're interested in the additive that I use in uh, in my heating oil tank, which would be the same thing that you would have if you had an on-farm storage tank for uh, for diesel fuel, because it's diesel fuel, number two oil we heat with. It's just dyed red, or like off-road diesel is. And uh, so just let me know. But anyway, to get back on track here, the filter looks look after five years and now my oil tank is 25 years old to 20 because we built the house in 96 so it's 25 this spring will be 26 years old so 26 year old oil tank and we keep it i mean the tank is in the basement though so that's better the filter other than discolored from the diesel fuel from the heating oil no sludge no nothing on like brand new the filter bowl like brand new shiny inside uh like brand new took the nozzle out the nozzle like brand new like it never the screw this the uh the um brass brass filter on the end of the nozzle (laughs) i mean if you told other than it have a slight odor of these of of heating oil nothing took the the uh they call it a screen in the pump i call it well i guess it's a screen not a filter it's round and it goes in there like it looks like a donut and uh nothing i mean hardly even discolored and then in the firebox no ash no anything the insulation in a firebox was tinted a little bit red from the dye in the fuel from the uh the flame hitting it and but that when we took the boiler apart the tubes had hardly any carpet on it i mean hardly anything whatsoever so i'm so happy that um that that additive works so uh, wonderfully and it keeps it so clean so i know because i felt badly i said geez you know five years this thing is going to be like a nightmare inside and i'm embarrassed of that but time just seems to um, to go fly by and tony does this i met him years ago and as i said he's going to be on i said i think last week that he's going to be on my on the road podcast and he's a mechanical contractor he does all big jobs i mean he does stuff for sunoco for big office buildings and up at uh, west point on the hudson river there the military academy he doesn't do residential work and he only does it for a couple of people he's friendly with so that's why it got so out of control because i'm not gonna you know i'm not gonna bust his chops and say to him hey tony we gotta come do my boiler he's working on a big half a million dollar job come over here and take my boiler apart and clean it i mean god forbid if i had a problem and it conked out and if he couldn't talk me through it and i couldn't fix it myself then he would run right up here to the farm so he's that type of guy so that's not i mean he, he always has your back but in the same token i'm going to be respectful of him if he's tied up in a big job i'm not going to have him come here and do something with my you know maintain my boiler so that's why it, it, you know, it got out of control so oh, we're going to do it in the summer and i got into corn and whatever you know how it goes time flies by so that is basically that and as i said if you're interested in the additive that i use just send me an email at hot rod farmer at farm machinery digest.com and i will let you know and the only reason why i'm doing that is that 
I don't want somebody, I mean, they're not an advertiser or, or whatever. I don't run this show this way that if you're not an advertiser, I'm not going to talk about it. But the thing basically is, is that um, just, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the lowdown with it. I'll give you the real deal with it if you uh, reach out to me, if you're interested. Okay, so that's it. Send me an email and we will go from there. Okay, so that is that. And we have a letter today for from the special delivery from Charles in Nebraska. And he's going to be asking about the turbocharger on his Case IH Magnum, which he needs to go through. He says it's worn out. So that thing was, he didn't say how many hours on it, but he must have been... Uh, doing some field work with that bad boy or he had some sort of issue with it maybe an oiling issue we don't know but we're going to address that at the end of the show we have a new toolbox test question and that's about a pickup truck that the brakes aren't working too good so we'll test your test your diagnostic skills with that but what the core of today's show is going to be and i'm i'm going to ask you to uh, to humor i don't want to use the word humor me with this but it's 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 going to be a stroll down memory lane for me and i'm going to share some things with you it's going to be a little bit of a different show i hope you don't mind that and i hope you end up listening to it and um, a couple of interesting stories of some people i was blessed to meet over the years within the i would i would call it the automotive community but if you want to say engineering or mechanical community whatever i don't even know if there's a a qualifier that you could put on it but i uh charlotte sends out christmas cards which i think is wonderful and then we got a card the we got a note the other day to a family we sent the christmas card to and this one gentleman uh i found out from his wife that he passed away this past summer and i did was not aware of it and that prompted me to tell not only his story but a story that is a parallel with that uh with his two people that never met but are really inspirations for us as americans and that is what i hope to that's what i i'm going to do today's show about so i'm going to tell you tell you my story about the sukovich family and leon dick so that is what we're about today and like i said i hope that you uh I hope that you enjoy it and, I, and that you find it as an inspiration. Well, a little backstory before I get to the main story. And the backstory being that for many years, I, I contributed to Hot Rod Magazine. Uh, and I'm saying this humbly in my, during my writing career in the automotive community or automotive industry, I've contributed to 45 or 47 different, let's say 45, whatever, 40, whatever number you want to say, uh, different magazine titles. Actually, in a business, we call them books. We don't call them magazines. So different 40 to 45, I think it's 45 books. And uh, back then, the magazine industry was so, was so vibrant. It wasn't as vibrant as it was 20 years prior to that when I wasn't even in the magazine industry. I started my writing career in 1993 when I had my shop and I wrote a uh, story for a magazine called Vet. And that was my my first uh, exposure into magazine writing. But anyway, but it was very vibrant. There was many, many magazines out there and people read. And I really think as an aside to this, it, that's a, it's a lost art today, reading. Uh, and the passion to read. You could learn so much by reading it's it's unbelievable and 
And to me, I mean, yes, you could read it on the internet. I have a website, right? So I asked you to come to my website and read my articles on my website. And so I guess I'm guilty of that also. But uh, but I think holding a magazine, holding a book, holding a periodical in your hand is a lot different than looking at something on a website. And I truly wish, I mean, my my original intent was not to have a website, but to have a magazine called Farm Machinery Digest. That's how. I, that's why it's called Farm Machinery Digest because my original goal was to have a magazine, a printed magazine that would follow the same format. But I could not have done that by myself. The technical content I could do by myself, but I needed a a large publisher company to to come on board with me and make the uh, make it all happen. So Susan Moore my art director would be able to lay it out i'd be able to create it but there's a lot more to that to making that successful there's the printing there's the distribution there's the mailing uh there's the billing there's the accounts receivable accounts payable and in business they call that the back end and i really needed someone to help me with to do the back end i could not do that and i was hoping that successful farming was going to do that with me but they they wanted to meredith corporation which sadly doesn't even exist anymore but you know god works in a mysterious way because i'm glad i did not get involved with them even though i I worked for them for many years as uh in successful farming magazine and on their tv show and i'm grateful for that but um the company went in a different direction and i don't think that i would have been happy with it and also the one of the caveats i attached to it is that it would have to be my magazine so you couldn't have a publisher come to you and say well, we don't want you to mention god we don't want you to mention this we don't want you to mention buy american you know we, we don't want you to mention that take that out of there so you know when you deal with a publisher or anything that you are you know you, you think it's yours but it really isn't so and that's why uh anyway so but that's what that's how it that's how it basically started and so what happened was that for for a number of years i was a contributor to hot rod magazine and the editor was ro mcgonigo and like i said it was a different world back then 20 years ago and people would write letters and there was email i guess it was just getting going but it really wasn't that big and actually the way i would uh send my assignments into publishers would be I would format them, I guess they called it a floppy disk, a three and a half inch disk, and then I would format it on the disk. I would also give a printed copy, and we didn't use any digital photography. There was actually photos or slides, and then you'd number those and you'd lay that all out. Excuse me, and you'd put that in a package, and then you would mail it to the editor. So I used to have a Pitney Bowes machine here in my office so that i could just package everything up mail it and go right to catch the mail made right here in the farm but anyway so i was working for hot rod magazine among 43 others and was really blessed and enjoyed working for hot rod and what had happened was that somebody wrote a letter to roe mcgonigal who was the editor in california now roe was originally from new jersey and uh he was uh, did very well for himself in the publishing community and then he ended up becoming editor of hot rod magazine so so these people write him a letter 
and their name was Sukovich, their last name, and they were out by Pittsburgh. They were out in the country. They were not in Pittsburgh. They were north of Pittsburgh, and actually, they weren't far from Mars, Pennsylvania, and that is where the Society of Automotive Engineers Library is, and I used to go there quite a bit, and that's a whole other story. But anyway, so they were out in the woods of western Pennsylvania, probably about 20 miles from the Ohio border. And they wrote, and they would read me in Hot Rod magazine, but they didn't know how to get a hold of me. So they wrote a letter to Roe McGonigal and telling him about what they invented and whether I would be interested in doing a article on their invention. And, you know, and respectfully, they didn't understand that I was a freelancer. People think that when you, they thought that I owned Hot Rod that I don't they thought I was Hot Rod magazine or some other magazine that I wrote for towards or some some something more than I actually was. So to Rose credit, he forwarded me the letter and he said to me, if you want to do this, I'll run it. He says, but it's up to you. It's out by Ohio. Do whatever you know, whatever you want to do it. So I called them up and they made I thought it was really cool. I it was really neat. It was cool what they had. And I made an arrangement to drive out there at my escort was new at the time. I remember it was probably about March, and uh, I drove out there, and I stayed at a Red Roof Inn, and they picked me up, and they brought me over to their house, and uh, they had a big garage. I think, I don't remember if it was attached to the house, and the, and the, the uh, Mark, it was the son, and Steve was the father, and, Steve, and the father, Steve, was a, uh, a retired tool and die maker for General Motors, and Mark was an electrician by trade, but they had a passion about engines and about machinery and what have you. And they took me over to the house and they took me in the garage and they had a, I think they had a wood stove there or something. It was nice and warm, it was snowing out, snowing out there, no alley. The cat just came up here, no alley. You can't do this alley. Go on down, I'm gonna go away from the mic. So come on, alley, go on down. So uh, that was Alley the alligator. She Last time she knocked everything over, pulled the wires out. So, uh, and the garage was nice and warm. I remember they had a, a table set up there, like a picnic table with a tablecloth on it. And Mrs. Sukovich had made some, some baked some homemade cakes and coffee. It was just, it was just, it was really wonderful. It was, it was such a warm welcome that they had given me. And what they invented, what Mark, his father, and there was another gentleman who worked with them, who was also, oh, actually, he was, I believe, he was a heavy equipment operator, but he had a machinist background. And what they did is they invented this system called IVC, infinite variable or infinite valve control. And instead of using a uh, camshaft to open the valves on an engine, they used this incline plane. It was quite, it, it was quite ingenious. So they used this incli incline plane and they actually, excuse me, I think they actually used a cam to operate the incline plane but the cam did not have to be a special grind. It just needed to be a lobe. And then the uh, the events of the duration and when the valve would open and close were keyed off of this inclined plane and and there was adjustability on it. And uh, it was it was phenomenal. So when I when I got there, they had two different engines set well they had they had a model of it on a cylinder head that was just on the table for me to look at. And then they had a Briggs and Stratton one-cylinder engine with it on there, uh, 
on a, on a stand. They built a stand. They were wonderful fabricators and machinists. And they had a, a Wisconsin two-cylinder engine on on this on a stand on a run stand these run run stands with their ivc system on it and it was amazing because they explained it all to me the machining that that they did on this i mean this was so perfectly executed that if if you know if you would have been to an oe you've been to general motors ford caterpillar whatever chrysler you would think it came out of your laboratory the machining the design and keep in mind that these guys are out in the backwoods of Pennsylvania near the Ohio border, not far from the Youngstown area. And they did this in the garage. And it, unbelievable. So they showed me everything, explained to me the theory of how of how it was going to open the valves and how they could change the valve timing and, and what have you. And at that particular point, they had no electronic controls on. They had to manually, uh, manually adjust it. So they go over so i said so i said do these engines run and they said sure I said you want to see it run i said i'd love to see it run so they go over to the briggs and stratton the um i think i think mark the son i remember mark mark that if you hear something that's that's ally the cat i don't know what she's doing but it's not good uh, so then mark goes and he uh you know closes the choke on the carburetor and pulls the rope but i think and the thing runs it revs up it does it, un, unbelievable ran they did some emissions testing on it it was actually cleaner than the valve the, the traditional camshaft valve train that was on the briggs and strat motor and we went over to the wisconsin motor and the same thing and uh it was it really was was phenomenal that these these two guys out into the woods of pennsylvania well actually it's three or four of them because there was this other i think george was the other gentleman and there was another person involved but mark and his father mark and steve sukovich were the brain trust for this and to think that i mean like i said i'm repeating it that if they would have if this if this came out of a, a, a car company or an engine company you would have been impressed and then I did it. I did an article in Hot Rod magazine. I believe it was in the July 1999 issue, and uh, I tried to look it up before I recorded this show. And I was able to find the cover, uh, and I saw it's an infinite uh, valve control system. And so I don't know if you could find that on the internet. I could not, but that doesn't mean anything because my internet skills are not that good. But they did such a wonderful job, and then. What happened was that they were trying to get in front of a number of companies and specifically they felt that it would probably its best application would have been in a diesel engine because of the lower rpm not that this couldn't work at higher rpm but then you'd have to have faster controls they needed somebody to integrate some sort of electronic controls because right now they had thumb screws on it that you would adjust it and move it so uh and then at the time superflow corporation uh was like i said the world changed it was a much more dynamic cooperation than it is today no disrespect if someone from superflow was listening i bought their flow bench i used to go to superflow's work their seminars i used to love their seminars I used to drive out to michigan to go to their classes they were taught by oe engineer development engineers not a guy who did a, a door hinge development engineers and just learned so much from them but harold bettis 
was the president or CEO of something of Superflow, and he he wrote an excellent book on Airflow. So I think it's SA Designs or the other company uh, publisher has it printed. It's still available, but sadly he just died. I think last year. But, you know, like I said, I'm repeating, it was a different world back then. You were able to pick up the phone and talk to somebody. And I had actually bought my flow bench a few years prior from Harold Bettis before I, at the, at the PRI show, before I uh, started my writing career, or just about the time. And and uh, Harold knew what I was doing, and, and I humbly say Harold respected what I was doing as far as the engines were concerned and respected my technical writing. So I called up Harold, and I told him, I said, you know, I met these guys in Boone article on Hot Rod and Superflow every year, and they used to be in Colorado Springs. Uh, Colorado Springs also was there, uh, just where I got a pin today in my map. But they had a, uh, their office was there, and they used to have a, every winter, they had a um, conference, it was called AETC, Advanced Engine, I think, Technical Conference. And I always wanted to attend it, and I never was able to get out there in December to go to Colorado Springs to, uh, I think it was a three or four day conference. And uh, it was, it was always, I, I heard nothing but wonderful things about it. So I, I spoke to Harold on the phone. I called him. He picked up the telephone. And like today, you get voicemail or you can't get a hold. Everybody's so busy, right? But they never get back to you. Like I said, different, different. And, uh, and you know, he said, so I uh, spoke to him. I said to him, look, I met these guys. I mean, they're not engineers by trade. He said, the guy's a machinist uh, from General Motors and the son is an is electrician. But you got to see this, Harold right and he says i saw the article you wrote in hot rod he says it's fantastic so uh so he's so i said i'd like to get them to talk at the advanced engine conference and then what happened steve i don't remember his father and they wanted me to go out there with them and i just couldn't make it happen um my father was had non-hodgkin's lymphoma and he was uh, i don't want to say dying at the time but he was he was not doing well and it's a precarious time of year to go out there, and then he would have been snowed in here if God forbid something happened. So it just, it just, the, the dynamics just didn't work for me. I mean, if it was someplace like Detroit, then it would be a different story. But uh, it was out in Colorado, so they actually, so Steve and I believe his father may have gone also, and they they went out and they presented at the Advanced Engine Conference, and um, they um, uh, you know got that out in front of the world. Sadly. Nothing really happened with it for them, and which is which I'll address at the end of this episode or before I get into the other aspect of the show today. But it was an unbelievable design. It it's not that it, it still has extreme merit, and I wish that somebody would implement it or some variation of it. And um, that, uh, like I said, a little bit more on that later on as I go to the next person. Well, what basically had happened was that the that the I, the article in Hot Rod on the IVC Infinite Valve Control System spawned another letter, and that letter was from Mister Leon Dick, and it's the same path took where they wrote the, he wrote the letter to uh, to the the editor Roy McGonigal in Hot Rod Magazine because nobody knew where I lived or what I was. I mean, so they just knew that I wrote the articles that people would, like I said, I'm saying it humbly, people would follow me as a writer, as a technical writer. And uh, so he wrote a letter and, and he said, he has a system that I may be interested in doing an article on. 
And so Rose sends it to me. And I believe that it was called the HFI, Hot Fuel Injection. And it was in, it, ingenious, uh, just as the Sukovich's IVC system. And, and Leon was the gentleman that I found out that just passed away. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit of backstory to him. I know more about Leon's backstory than I do to Sukovich's backstory, sadly. Um, because I went out to, he flew me out to Arizona, and I spent a day or two there with him, and um, I'll get into that in a little bit. But anyway, Leon uh, was a, I believe he was born in Angola, Indiana, and then his family migrated up to Coldwater, Michigan, and he was always involved with, you know, engines and machining and farm equipment and what have you, and then he... Uh, he went into the army. I think he got dra- he got drafted into the army, and around, I guess the early part of, I I I guess it was I don't know the maybe right after the Korean War, before the Vietnam War, or the tail end of the Korean War, when it, or he was in when the Pueblo incident happened, with the ship I believe with North Korea and the North Koreans supposedly captured it and got a lot of information and top secret information, which I'll tell you about, which I didn't know but uh, until Leon. So he was a, uh, not a Morse code, he was some kind of uh, intelligence specialist in the army. And so what had happened was that he was always interested in engines, and well, I might as well finish that story now. So he had told me that the Pueblo incident, because he was, he says, I could talk about it now because it's 40 years later. It's no longer classified. But he said, that was all a setup. He goes, they want, I believe it was the North Koreans, and they wanted them to capture that ship. And because all of the information, the, the, the data or whatever it was, the missile codes, whatever they had in that ship was all bogus. And they knew that the, if I have my history correct, but I mean, I may write church wrong pew, I may have some elements wrong, but not the actual story is not wrong. And they knew that whoever was, I think it was the North Koreans, uh, would give that to the Russians and would put the Russians like 10 or 15 years behind because it was all bogus and it was bad missile codes, it was bad, everything, everything was a ruse. And they wanted that ship captured. So, you know, because he, when I remember we were having dinner, he talked about, I said, the Pueblo, I said, I'm so, that, that, that I mean, I wasn't, uh, you know, whatever, if I wasn't born or was an infant or something, I said, but as an American, that really upset me. He goes, no, no, no. He says, that was all planned. He goes, he says, no, he says, it was planned to put Russia behind 10 or 20 years behind the United States. So I thought that was quite funny. And then, then he had also told me, so on that same dinner conversation where we were getting ready to see this hot fuel injection, is that he had mentioned, I believe it was the Pogue carburetor, which was a hot air carburetor. And he had said that during World War II with the Africa Corps, with, uh, well, when I shouldn't say Africa, with the African campaign, the Africa Corps was actually Rommel, the Germans, if I'm correct. But anyway, that Patton and Rommel were, in Rommel used to be called the Desert Fox. And he was, um, Patton and Rommel were arch rivals in the, uh, in, and they were fighting in the African campaign. And one of the things was that in General Patton's tank brigade, there was a young man and, 
that whole deal in Africa, as far as I understand, as Mr. Dick explained to me, Leon Dick, was that that the fuel was everybody's problem, that you they're running out of fuel. And I think we had Sherman tanks, and I don't remember whether the Germans had Panzers or Tigers. I get that confused, but they were... I'm not going to say a much more superior tank as an American. I'm not going to say that, but it was a different tank. It was a bigger tank. It was a heavier tank and had more powerful guns, as I understand. If anybody's a historian, please feel free to correct me on this. And the Shermans, the Sherman was light and fast. So uh, it wasn't as heavy armament as what the Germans had. But so gasoline was then. They were gasoline engines back then, and they were in short supply some gasoline fuel was in short supply to get it to africa so what happened was that that leon is telling me that this this guy comes he's in he's a mechanic a farm boy i don't know where he was from and he comes to general Patton, and he was in his brigade and he says to general i know what i could do to our tanks to drastically improve the fuel economy and he explained it to the patent to general patent and Patton said all right so all right let's try it on one so what he basically did in essence was he put a heating element and how he did it i have no idea he put a heat and i think well eventually there was the pogue hot air carburetor i believe but i don't believe that he was pogue but anyway put a heating element which is like almost like an intake air heater that they have on diesels and back in the 80s general motors and the car manufacturers did away with the heat riser valve and they put a heating element underneath the carburetor so when the engine was cold that the fuel would vaporize so what happened was that he somehow developed this this kid this farm kid in Patton's tank corps and the whole idea was to get the rate of vaporization of the fuel higher because if you could have a higher rate of vaporization you'll have better fuel economy you'll have a you'll have more uh, uh chemical to man- mechanical energy exchange the negative of it though is that if you have hotter air coming in that you'll make less horsepower because the air won't be as dense but they were not concerned with horsepower they were concerned with fuel economy and so they did this and this is what what leon dick was telling me they did it and it worked and then patent had this young man and you you know, you'd probably never see this story in a history book and it was, you'd have to be somebody who was either involved with it or intimate with it. it had to be there everything doesn't get written and lots of times when it does get written it gets skewed uh so anyway so the long and short of it is that if you look at history that Patton ran Rommel out of gas he had Rommel so so Patton his patents I believe they were Sherman's as I said they were little fast slight little fast tanks and like trying trying to chase a mouse or a chicken around to try to pick her up right is that uh she's running fast and you can't get her so Patton had Rommel chase him all around the desert and that's what you know what leon told me then again if i'm wrong please correct me and pat ran out of gas and not Patton. i mean rommel ran out of gas and then Patton was able to come in there and win the africa campaign with this so what happened was that somehow leon was very privy to this he was in after world war ii so he wasn't involved with it but he was very privy to it so what he came up with this idea and he called it hot fuel injection and what you would do is that you'd have no carburetor and no intake manifold and he would 
and he took two it was two Chevrolet engines and he had them there in Arizona on a stand both on a separate engine run stand one was a, a 4.3 liter v6 and the other was a, a 454 and he his machine work was not as was was i'll respectfully say that it was crude but it was functional sukovich's stuff was gorgeous but leon was not a machinist by trade all right so uh so he did a better job than i would have done and basically in essence without overcomplicating it is what he did is that he drilled the cylinder head and then the he had uh the pressing seats they were cast iron heads so they would not have had a pressing seat but he had a pressing seat put into the, into the cylinder heads on the intake side and then what he did was he drilled gun drilled very finely gun drilled the seat before he put it in he drilled passages how he did it i at the time he explained it to me uh but i don't i can't recall now because it's 20 years ago and what would happen was that he would inject the fuel through the valve seat so and i believe and it was uh on the top so it was above the valve so it was more in the bowl area and he would inject the fuel there so he called it hot fuel injection because it would the fuel would be injected into that very hot region almost like gasoline direct injection but it would be hotter right there around by the valves so and at the end what he would do was that he would actually if i want i not i i wanted i suggested they both tried to get together but it just didn't happen they both they just never came to fruition is that the sukovich ivc system and and leon's hot fuel injection would have been together like bacon and eggs would have been actually perfect but you didn't need an intake manifold you didn't need a carburetor you need anything because what he would do is he would vary the lift on the valves and vary the fuel and and so we had these two engines they were sitting there on run stands no intake manifold he had a valley pan that he made up out of sheet metal just to block the camshaft and the oil so it doesn't come splashing out and he would go to the head and he made a bunch of mechanical levers that again also needed some sort of electronic controls but mechanical levers and he would you know hit the starter button and the both engines ran and they didn't run too badly and uh, considering how crudely uh for a first iteration of it but they both ran so and never in my life did i sit there and see a, a v8 well a 454 a v8 and a v6 engine running with no intake manifold on it nothing no carburetor no intake manifold and what he would do is he would vary the amount of fuel like a diesel does and he'd vary the valve lift and timing with these levers to make it rev up and they started they actually we were in arizona it started it, i mean i think maybe it turned off the crank three or four times before it started but it was crude he had a bunch of switches he had to turn on the fuel pump and what have you and the thing started and ran and uh but his, his one of the things that he said was of benefit to it was that it was not sensitive to the quality of fuel and what he was hoping to do was to get this in, engine into third this design it could have been applicated to any engine just happened to be chevy engines get it into third world countries where they had very dirty fuel low octane fuel he says he showed me you could mix diesel fuel with gasoline you can mix it with cooking oil even though it was spark ignition you could put it with anything and the thing would light off and run 
I mean, so it would actually run. I mean, granted, it ran the nicest on gasoline, but it would actually run. So it was uh, it was remarkable, remarkable that he did this in a little garage, and he actually he actually envisioned envisioned it when he was. Uh, living in Michigan when he came home from the war. But then, you know, life took hold. He got married. He had children and uh, got a job, I think, with a uh, airline. He was in aircraft maintenance. I think he was uh, some kind of supervisor or something of consequence in that and then ended up retiring. And then they moved to Arizona. Of course, I think his mother-in-law had moved to Arizona and she got sick and then uh, they needed to help take care of her or something of that nature. But it was absolutely remarkable. So it was. I was truly, truly blessed with my days in Hot Rod with Hot Rod Magazine because I was able to meet the Sukovich family, and we kept in communication for many years afterwards. Because that was in 1999, I met them. I wasn't married yet. I was getting married that summer, and uh, kept many years. And then we kind of. I don't, you know, not, not say drifted apart, but I, I don't know whether Steve, the father, is still alive. And then we always communicate, uh, kept going with Christmas cards with them. And then one day the Christmas cards stopped coming. And then so I'm sure something happened there. And then we, we always sent, Charlotte always sent Christmas cards to the Dick family, Leon Dick out in Arizona. And they actually lived in, in Arizona, they lived in Alaska for a while, I think, outside of Willow, Alaska. And they had a, a, I think, a fishing lodge there or something. Quite interesting people. And uh, I think they had a seaplane to go in and out that he flew with uh, and kept in contact with them. And then just yesterday, I found out that, that Leon had passed away. Charlotte had sent them a Christmas card and addressed to both of them and then um uh, mrs dick didn't realize that we didn't know that leon passed away so i'm actually going to give her a phone call in the next week or so and uh and tell her about this this podcast that she may want to listen to it but you know as i get ready to come around here with this that you know the take-home message that that i would like to deliver to you is number one is that Leon Dick and Mark and Steve Sukovich, the passion of these people and a desire to do something is it is just just phenomenal and is is awe inspiring to me and hopefully these stories, even though I probably did a poor job of telling them to you, will inspire you. And you know, Steve Sukovich and Leon Dick were later in life. I mean, they weren't twenty years old when they were doing this. And so, so you know, the thing is that whether you're twenty years old or whether you're eighty years old, is that you know, that as long as the good Lord blesses you with breath and with ability, that you could do something with it. But you know, the thing is that if you look at these two families, none of they were not wealthy. Neither one of them, by any means, were wealthy. I mean. They, I mean, they survived. I mean, they made a living by God's grace. A machinist and an electrician, or a tool and die maker, electrician, and then then the Dick family, Leon being, you know, uh, having the fishing lodge, and then also working, I believe, in the airline industry. So uh, they made a living. They were not rich, but the impetus for them to do this was to take their passion and to make it. To make the world better and that's really what i see and and part of 
me doing this podcast and part of me doing my website and my radio show is not only to educate the audience and to help the agricultural community and those in it to uh, to prosper in the only way that I know how because they're feeding they're feeding America they're feeding the world but also to act as a catalyst for somebody regardless of your age to be able to take to pursue an education and you know the term education is very loose um people think well education you have to have a phd you have a phd that's wonderful you know what i'm saying that's wonderful nothing wrong with that but but to to, to learn to, to 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 use the the intelligence that god gave you and to apply it to something but as i started to say is that both the sukovich family and leon dick of course they would have they would have loved to see their their invention in production i know that for a fact that it broke their hearts both of both families it broke their hearts that it wasn't openly embraced by the world as they had hoped and believed and as it should have been but you know i got to know these three these three men and they were they were men of the highest caliber and even though, yeah, they wanted to see it go into production, they wanted to see it someplace. Yeah, but they they wanted a cash a check from it. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, but that wasn't where their heart was. Their heart was to better the world. They because the Sukoviches felt that 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 they could make an engine so much more efficient with this design, and and less complicated, and do good things for America and the world with it and then and then leon with his hot fuel injection i mean his impetus was to go help poor people in third world countries or help poor people in the united states a guy has a, a small little farm or he has a needs uh, needs to run an engine for a generator or a water pump or something i mean there's, there's there's needs throughout the world and there's plenty of needs here at home and that's really what drove these guys yeah i mean did they want to go down the road and see a, a car or a truck with an emblem that said IVC or HFI on it? Of course they wanted. But that really wasn't what they were about. And the idea that they executed this so precisely with such limited, limited uh, resources is probably the better word than anything. Resources, doing it on a retirement or a social security or income and going to a machine shop and i know that with the Sukoviches, you know where that he was allowed his friends who had machine shops to go in there at night or on weekends and design something and like i said these these these, these guys were uh, unbelievable and uh, i was so blessed to meet them to have them to have them become only to spend a day or so with them and and have them come into my life because that uh, that's what it's all about so you know you take machinery you take education you take knowledge and you know into my way of thinking it's going to be some kid who grows up on a farm who grows up in an inner city i mean and you know and is fooling around underneath the hood and building hot rods and taking motors apart and figuring out how you know hey i busted this i have a go-kart i gotta bust it it needs to be welded and 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 learn how to stick two pieces of metal together and then take that and that's the catalyst and moves on and that's the person that's going to put 
that's going to move the world in a in a in a in a, in a positive sense. That's a kid that may find the cure to cancer, and you say, well, how is a kid who would a drag race or hot rod? farm kid with a learning how to weld a machine or build something find the cure to cancer because what he may build may allow someone who has an education and knowledge in biology and oncology to be able to do that so and as i get to as i close get ready to close i'm going to share a story with you that a lot of people don't know but um if you know, throughout the United States, and I believe it started in New York City, but I may be wrong, is the Sloan Kettering Cancer Institute. And the Sloan Kettering Cancer Institute is Alfred Sloan and Charles Kettering. So you may say, who is Alfred Sloan? Well, Alfred Sloan was the de the developer or the the, uh, the man who made General Motors. He put General Motors together. General Motors was, he bought all different companies, bought it from the Chevrolet, from the Chevrolet, I think they were brothers. He bought it from Ransom E. O's. Rio was Oldsmobile, and he put this all together, and he bought all these companies, and he formed General Motors. General Motors was nothing. It was uh, it was through acquisition. And then he bought the, the Dayton Electric Company, which we all know is Delco. And the Dayton Electric Company was started by Charles Kettering. And Charles Kettering, there's a town named after him now where he grew up, Kettering, Ohio. And Charles Kettering invented the cranking motor to starter. And he had, I believe, a sixth grade education. And and he started and he the cranking motor to starter because back years ago he used to have hand cranks and then what happened was that if you if the engine kicked back a lot of people would have their arm ripped off and they bled to death and his best friend got killed that way his arm got torn off out in the country on the farm someplace and some engine kicked back and he bled to death and also the idea of the cranking motor allowed women to drive a car because the, most women did not have the physical strength by the way God created a man and a woman to be able to crank an engine to start it. And then Charles, then Alfred Sloan bought it, and and that became Delco and became General Motors, which is a wonderful company, That's and a uh, wonderful, wonderful company. Well, anyway, to get back to, well, both of their wives died of cancer. Charles Kettering's wife died of cancer, and Alfred Sloan's wife died of cancer, and General Motors was already, <clears throat> you know, General Motors, the envy of the world. And, uh, and they came to the medical community, and they said, what can we do to help you to, 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 to with, with either cancer diagnosis or what have you? And then what they said is we need something, the medical, and I'm you know paraphrasing this because I don't know that this is the, the core of the story and the important part of it. And they said, well, they said, we need something beyond an X-ray machine. And so General Motors with Charles Kettering at the head of it in the Warren Technical Center in Michigan. All right, all car guys, this was back then, farm kids, city kids, kids from the war, they invented the MRI machine. And General Motors never made a dime off of it. They gave the MRI machine to free to, in, for free to the world. And that was through... The, and, Charles Kettering and Alfred Sloan, with their own money, started the Sloan Kettering Cancer Institute, which I guarantee you 99% of the people who work there don't even know that it was 
it, it was not funded directly by General Motors, but the people who made their money through General Motors. So all of those guys that were designing engines and carburetors and cylinder heads and transmissions were put to work to design, to invent, not design, something called, which became known as an MRI machine. And then obviously many 50, 60 years later, it's much more advanced. But in the same token, in 1953 and 1954, on the same token, the first artificial heart that allowed bypass surgery, not to say, but open heart surgery, where they took your heart out and stopped your heart, all right, the artificial heart was designed by General Motors, and I believe it was in 1953 or 54, and it was designed at the research center in Michigan, the same research center, the Warren Technical Center. So just so those two inventions were were not not they were created out of nothing by car guys farmers hot rodders guys who went to school through the gi bill guys who grew up <laughs> grew up shoeing horses knowing what a hard day's work with knowing what the dynamics were of how you know working with things and, and seeing and seeing how physics works not in the classroom but works on the farm or in real life right and then went to school and obviously got an education because i'm not demeaning going to college and getting an education but going to college and getting an education without that foundation is worthless and in so many ways that's what we have today so i i want to thank you so much before we continue on with today's show i want to thank you so much for allowing me to to tell you the stories of the Sukovich family and Leon Dick and what wonderful men they were and how they made something out of nothing and thought so far out of the box. And if you were to say, well, you're going to do this and you and they, these, and I said, I saw these, I saw both of their inventions. I saw both of, I saw it ran. I, I remember that, um, uh, Steve Sukovich told me that they want when they went to go get it patent. There was somebody from the patent office that said that this would never work. So, uh, and I think Leon Dick may have had the same, almost the same experience. But I know the Sukovich example for sure. And so they said, "Well, you know, this is never going to work." And the patent office referred it to SAE, which was not far from them. And they had a, uh, I remember they had an Oriental guy who was somebody at SAE. And uh, he said, oh, this will never run, never run. So they took the engine, I think the Wisconsin engine, over to SAE. And they said, and the guy looked at it, this guy's PhD. And he said, oh, this will never work, blah, 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 blah. So they said, okay, fine, you want to see it run? He goes, it'll never run. And they went and they go, and they pulled the rope and the thing ran. And that's when the patent got approved. And I may be modifying that story this, to a little bit of an extent, but that's really the core of it. So... So the thing basically is, is that if you have a, you yourself, you yourself, I know I have listeners of all different ages, young, old, in between. The thing is that pursue your dreams, pursue your dreams, use the ability that God gave you. And in this world, who knows, maybe a young person that you interact with, or maybe you yourself will be the catalyst the catalyst working with a team of people like general motors did with the mri machine and with the uh with the uh the artificial heart or the iron heart whatever they called it the bypass 
machine and yes you're not going to do it on your own but you never you never know what you could create and what you create in the fertile mind of a hot rod farmer could change the world and change the world for better so just give that some thought and if you have the opportunity to see if you could maybe find those articles you may enjoy them but now we need to go underneath the uh we need to uh excuse me we need to not go underneath the sheet metal we need to do our toolbox test so we're going to get tex rubinowitz in here from ripsaw records come on in tex Yeah, buddy. Thank you so much, Tex. And I love that song, Hot Rod Man. So hopefully, uh, all right, we got the uh, toolbox test here. You ready? Got your thinking cap on? You recently replaced the front brakes on your 10-year-old pickup truck. The truck is not used much, so when you went to the parts store in town, out of the three offerings they had, you chose the least expensive pads and rotors. Everything fit fine and the job went with no hitches. You only <clears throat> you only took the truck up the farm lane and stopped and stepped on the brake a few times to check it out. All seemed good. About a week later, your wife took the truck to town. She said that it stops, but it seems as if she really needed to press very hard on the brake pedal. Thinking that the pads and rotors needed to be seated, you took the truck to a meeting about 100 miles away. After 200 miles, so it's 100 miles there, 100 miles back, things should be fine. You thought, but they weren't. As your wife said, it stops, the truck stops, but the pedal pressure seems to be higher than it was with the old brakes. You ask your friends for some ideas. Farmer A says that you should check the power booster, and if that is fine, it is the part you used. The friction, the friction material and friction surface are not compatible. Farmer B believes that you did not lubricate the sliders on the caliper. Farmer C tells you, tells you that, <clears throat> that it must be the way it is supposed to feel and that the old brakes were worn so it was easier to stop. So Farmer C is saying to you, well, this is the right way. The old worn brakes made it easier to stop. Well, so much for pharmacy right and then farmer d chimes in that the master cylinder is going bad so basically in essence you did a brake job the vehicle stops requires excessive pedal pressure not two feet but it doesn't stop as easily without as much effort as it did prior to you doing the brake job so we have some choices there for you to think about so now we have our letter and it says i have a case ih magnum tractor and the turbocharger is worn any ideas about having it repaired i do not need it until the spring so i could do it the right way and that's charles from nebraska all righty so this is what i would suggest that you do number one if the if the turbocharger is worn i don't know how many hours on the tractor and everything so i don't know whether it has a water-cooled center section i know it has an oil line it's it's pressure lubricated from the engine so 
let's assume that the turbocharger just has a lot of hours on it and it's worn. So if you want to hot rod this turbocharger, which basically what this gentleman from Nebraska said, he wants to make this turbocharger better. What I would suggest that you do, and since you're in no great hurry, is that you need to find a turbo rebuilding shop that is going to really be willing to work with you. And what I mean is that you need a guy who's got does some performance turbocharger work because a guy who's just a regular rebuilder is going to take part a out and put part a in so what i would say to you to do is that first of all you have to confirm whoever is going to do this work has a balance turbocharger balance machine is able to use it and wants to and will be able to do a very very fine balance you're going to need to talk to them about say the different levels of there are different levels of balance say you know what do you normally do so basically you want this balance like a racing turbocharger or one that's on a tractor pull engine so you want a very very fine balance and what that fine balance is going to do is going to not only let it spool up quicker it's going to make it last longer because you're going to reduce the what they call nvh noise vibration and harshness the harmonics going into the bearing so instead of the energy being used to be moved to move the 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 uh the imbalance taking moving up and down left and right or what have you as it spins i mean you're not going to see this but the forces of the energy will will be used to do that it's going to use it to spin it so your boost is going to come in quicker it's going to come up sooner beautiful it's going to last longer the next thing that i suggest for you to do is have them replace the bearings with ceramic bearings if you put a ceramic bearing in there I mean, uh, I do some editorial work, some writing work for Torque Storm Superchargers out in Michigan. They run these ceramic bearings. They use actually they use a hybrid ceramic. So I think so. The one race is uh, is metal, and the other race in the balls are ceramic. But you could do a, use put a ceramic bearing or a hybrid ceramic bearing in there, and. <clears throat> the amount of parasitic loss with a ceramic bearing versus regular bearing is is so minimum you go like this on that turbocharger and it's going to spin like a dragon all right so the thing is that so you use it put a put ceramic bearings in there or at least a hybrid ceramic bearing and then again that's going to let it spool up faster because it's as it's going to get more it's going to get more shaft speed because remember there's the turbine and there's the compressor and the turbine is being driven by the exhaust and the compressor is driving the air it's both on the same shaft it's like a water wheel so if you have if you have less rotational force is required it's going to spin up quicker and that means that you're going to get boost sooner and you will probably get a little bit more boost all right simply because you will have a little bit more rpm but it's not going to be boosting we're going to blow the head gas get off it but you get a lot more response so should me clear my throat <coughs> excuse me so uh so you're working this tractor and whatever you're doing something you, you put a little load on the engine the load comes not a little load comes in that turbocharger is going to really and it's going to really spool up so so between the fine balance and the ceramic bearings the other thing that i would do is i would take the exhaust housing which is the turbine housing and have it and have it coated with a thermal barrier coating 
and uh i use swain tech up in uh scottsville new york but you don't want a ceramic coating you don't want a pretty coins you want a thermal barrier coating and since you can have the volute off they could coat the inside of the volute <clears throat> and they could coat the outside and what you're going to basically do is you're going to keep that heat in that volute and you have to remember turbocharger works by the isentropic expansion the uh <coughs> the expansion of the exhaust gas without thermal change so if you could keep that heat in there and then let that exhaust gas expand against that turbine wheel then again that thing is going to spin like you wouldn't believe all right plus you're going to keep a lot of heat out from underneath the hood all right and right from other components right <clears throat> so that's that the other thing i would do if it doesn't have an adjustable wastegate actuator on it i mean, <coughs> excuse me <coughs> my throat is uh getting all clogged up adjustable wastegate actuator on it i would install one of those and even if it has an adjustable one i'd put a new one on there and then uh, you know, if you talk to a turbocharger guy who's a hot water he could change or put different wheels on it i would probably keep the stock wheel on the stock compressor wheel and the stock turbine wheel that 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 the case had or has on it which is trying to be an fpt engine fiat powertrain so the thing is that but what we, what we would be doing by doing the fine balance the ceramic bearings and the thermal barrier coating on the on the turbine side you don't need anything on the compressor side is that you're going to make that turbocharger so much more efficient that you don't need to play with the fins and the, the blades on the turbine wheel or the compressor wheel and i think that you're going to put some more money into it. i'm not going to deny that but you're going to have a killer 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 sweet piece there if you have any questions on it just give me a, give me an email at hot rod farmer at farm machinery digest.com and if you are end up doing it please let me know <clears throat> how it turns out okay so now with our toolbox test question we got our answer about these brakes why don't these brakes work as well new pads new rotors the old pads stop better the vehicle stops but you really got to press on it right so farmer a is correct if the power booster is not failing then the two surfaces are having an antagonistic reaction to check the booster start the engine and let it run for a minute then shut the engine off and pump the brakes after a few pumps the pedal should get very hard with the brake pedal still depressed don't take your foot off the brake start the engine once the vacuum booster charges in other words once it gets a vacuum in the booster the brake pedal should drop down slightly and then the feel should return all right if you if you step on and off then if it does not there is an issue with the booster or the line that goes to it so i doubt very much that in this particular instance that the farmer did a brake job and the booster went bad stranger things have happened all right now keep in mind that there's a check valve on that booster and there's a filter on that booster so that the gasoline fumes from the engine don't deteriorate the diaphragm but anyway i doubt very much if that just miraculously went bad while he was doing the front brakes the thing is that you have to and i spoke about this many times in the show when it comes to any friction material whether it's clutch or brakes then i use the word antagonistic in this toolbox test question is that the material of the friction surface which would be the pad brake pad or brake shoe or clutch and then the the, the friction 
the friction material, excuse me, and the friction surface where it's gonna where it's gonna go up against, whether it's a clutch or whether it's a brake rotor or drum, there has to be a synergy there, and it's very and you and, and if you <coughs> excuse me, and you guys know that I write for car magazines, and in my one column in Hemmings Muscle Mag Muscle Machines, <coughs> it's called Ask Ray. I'm forever. I'm getting letters i don't print them all because i've answered the question 500 times is that the people do the brakes or they upgrade the brakes or they think they're upgrading it and they have this issue what basically happens is if you have the wrong friction surface and the wrong friction material is that it'll actually want to slide on it so you're not going to have that grabbing force that would be like walking I don't want to say walking on ice, but walking on a slippery surface where you're walking and all of a sudden you're like in a shop and there's oil on the floor or the metaphorical banana peel, all right? So the thing is that so whereas you would be generating so much resistance of let's say 100 pounds of brake pressure when you have the proper friction surface and it's not antagonistic where it's working against one another you may have to put 200 pounds of pressure to get it to, to, to slow down or to have the same amount of reduction in rotational speed and that is what happens and it's very very common not just with antique vehicles and older vehicles is that but even if you go you go to town and if you happen to be lucky in the brake pads and the rotors you buy happen to work pretty well you put it on and it's fine and you say that hot rod farm was full of it because they never had any problems well if you do it long enough you can have a time like this because and it's and i'm using the word antagonistic but it's where that the surfaces are not then then they're not working together and you have to actually put so much force on it because for lack of better terms instead of causing it's slippery so it'd be like having oil on the brake shoes on the brake pads or water on them it's slippery so that and is and people don't recognize even people in the industry and that's why i say use factory parts when they're available all right because it is so much easier because you're going to have the right friction material and the right friction surface on older older applications you can't buy factory parts and stick with a name 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 brand and try to say okay if i'm going to buy these shoes or these pads and these rotors try to stick with that from that particular company but if you have something like this don't go crazy it's the actually probably if you went to a different if this farmer goes to a different set of brake pads that he probably would have better stopping on this pickup truck but the same thing with clutches anything brake pads brake shoes is that there's a synergy that needs to be established there that a lot of people overlook so listen i want to thank you so much for uh for clicking in to me today and hearing my stories from my days of meeting these wonderful people and uh and the sukovich family uh mark and steve and leon dick and just wonderful wonderful people and had the truth all patriots and just great people that had that had the uh the spirit of america with no pedigree but other than a desire in their heart and a passion so uh just keep that in the back of your mind and know that the hot rod farmer is always pulling for you the american farmer and rancher and my beloved beloved america i went long today i'm sorry back to a regular educational show next week take care bye-bye